Hey everybody, my name is Shana McCullough and I'm a PA student at Des Moines University. I would like to thank you for choosing to be a part of my capstone project, which is this podcast series on the social psychology of prejudice. I chose this topic because I took a course on it in my undergraduate studies and it was a very vulnerable and enlightening learning experience that changed the way I treated others and even changed the way I treated myself. It became both a priority and a journey, especially as a health professional, to become more culturally competent and to truly understand people as individuals. Even as a health professional who is trained to be unbiased, we are not perfect humans. We still judge people and we stereotype them, and sometimes it can be so automatic and subconscious that it's out of our control. Though not considered a disease in technical terms, prejudice has the ability to cause significant harm to patients, especially when providers are unaware of the prejudices they carry. So the goal of my capstone project is to provide a platform to discuss and educate medical professionals on the psychology of prejudice. I hope by the end of this series you'll be better able to understand why we're prejudiced and how prejudice affects the way that we provide care. More importantly, I hope you'll be able to take away some methods on how to reduce prejudice and apply it in your future careers. Being that I'm hoping to connect an audience of medical professionals to this important topic, I love the idea of presenting prejudice similar to how you would learn disease processes in your programs. I'll introduce you to a short background on prejudice, the etiology and its purpose, and then the epidemiology of who is affected. Then we'll move on to the clinical presentations where I will share some case studies on how prejudice has affected patients. And lastly, I will introduce some treatment options or methods one may incorporate to reduce prejudice in their practices. Before beginning, I would first like to thank Dr. Cindy Struckman-Johnson, a psychology professor from the University of South Dakota, as she inspired this project through her Psych of Prejudice course at USD. She is a well-spoken woman who has done so much research over the years, and she has graciously given permission to share that research in these podcasts. Additionally, I would like to thank Dr. Blaine and McClure Brenchley, professors in Rochester, New York, as I will be citing their research regularly from their book, Understanding the Psych of Diversity. And lastly, I want to give a shout out to my little brother, Danny, as he is the very talented musician that you'll be hearing at the beginnings of these podcasts. So let's get started. The word prejudice originates from the Latin word prejudicium, meaning hasty judgment or resistant to contrary information or new knowledge. According to American psychologist Gordon Alport, the definition of prejudice is an unjustified judgment of an individual based on his or her social group identity. As explained by Dr. Blaine and McClure Brenchley in the text Understanding the Psychology of Diversity, prejudice is an attitude that is comprised of three components. The first component is affective, meaning prejudice is tied to feelings or emotions. That can be feelings of favorability, good or bad mood, resentment, anger, fear, or anxiety. The second component is a cognitive component, meaning our rationale and stereotypic processing. The last component is behavioral intentions, which are actions taken for or against certain group members. Although prejudice is commonly thought to be experienced negatively, it is certainly possible and common by these three components to experience positive prejudice too. There are several research theories on why prejudice exists. It's questionable which theory is most correct as it is thought that the etiology is a combination of many. 
This podcast would be hours long if we went through all the research. So for the remainder of this podcast, I'll discuss the spark notes of the older research. And then in the following, I'll discuss the meat and potatoes on the research that is most highly accepted today. Many theories from the early to mid-1900s focused on a frustration-aggression approach to understanding prejudice. I relate these theories to being in the most stressful months of didactic year of PA school. I was running on about two hours of sleep with 60 parts blood and 40 parts coffee in my veins and I was highly irritable. And because I couldn't control the reasons I was under so much stress, I took my frustration out on others by being short-fused since I could actually control those actions. A majority of us are all guilty of doing this in some shape or form. This is a much milder comparison to the research done by Hovland and Sears published in the Journal of Psychology in 1939 supporting the scapegoat theory. This found a correlation between the number of lynchings and the economic state of the country. Their hypothesis was that aggressive acts were more numerous during years of economic depression and it eased during years of prosperity. They have several years documented that show this trend. The more interference there was with a goal, the more irritability there would be, and frustration was eased through this severe scapegoat method. Similar to that theory, an economic incentives theory was discussed in lecture by Dr. Struckman Johnson in 2016. This basically said that the exploitation of groups for economic incentives are then justified by the beneficiaries by use of prejudice and stereotypes. One of the largest examples of this is slavery, the worldwide slave trade and mistreatment and exploitation of Africans to farm and be used as a possession against their will was justified by thinking of them as three-fifths a person. Another large example, slave labor in Nazi Germany, the killings of our indigenous peoples for colonization, or even most recently on May 1st, 2013, when an Iowa jury awarded $240 million to 32 mentally disabled men for the physical and verbal abuse by a Texas-based company that forced them into work on an Iowa turkey plant. The plant had unfit and infested bunkhouses, and they were only paid 41 cents an hour for their hard work. It's honestly insane to see these theories from the 1900s hold true to this day. Next, towards the mid to late 1900s, there was a shift away from the economic side of the research to the realistic group conflict theory. Research shows that as humans, when we are in competition with others for some type of reward, we subconsciously and instinctively evaluate those who are socially different from us as more negatively. There was a field experiment at a boys' summer camp conducted by Mazufer Sheriff in 1966, and during this camp, boys were divided up into teams to complete activities, during which they showed great camaraderie and they did not experience any negative attitudes towards other groups. But once Sheriff implemented competition between groups for rewards and recognition, the boys then showed anger and negative attitudes and actions towards the other teams. I like this study because it clearly shows that fear and anxiety, which the boys had when they were worried about not winning, is clearly tied to the negative evaluation of socially different people. It's that affective component of prejudice that we mentioned earlier. So when you bring together people who are socially different in some way, problems will arise when they must compete for limited resources. Applying this to a more current example, take a step back and think about immigration, legal or illegal. You can definitely understand why there is a fear and anxiety centered around job security, and it makes sense as the limited resources could be jobs or status, and now these socially different groups have to compete for this. 
Then this relative deprivation theory emerged around the 1960s, basically saying if you see another group doing better than your own, you feel relatively deprived, which perpetuates prejudice. We've all seen examples of bad sportsmanship, and this is kind of what this theory is getting at. There was a study done in 1972 by Vanneman and Pettigrew, which surveyed three different groups of white Americans. Those who felt collectively deprived compared to black Americans, those who felt individually deprived compared to black Americans, and those who were happy with their circumstances compared to black Americans overall. The results showed that the only group who actually expressed negative attitudes towards blacks were the white participants who believed their group was collectively deprived. It's very natural to fear relative deprivation, to fear or be hurt by not receiving equal to our equals. I like this theory because I hate to say normalize, but for lack of a better word, it normalizes how automatic our negative prejudices can be. Moving on to our next theory, do you think it's possible that there's a personality type associated with being prejudiced? Well, according to Dr. Blaine and McClure Brenchley, psychologists spent a lot of time trying to answer this very question in the 1950s and 60s. The authoritarian personality and social dominance orientation were highly researched topics developed to explain this. A psychologist and philosopher named Theodore Adorno discovered what is known as F-scale characteristics, which were comprised of the six following. An intolerance for weakness, preoccupation with status and power, conformity to cultural values, black and white thought processes, preoccupation with others' sex lives, and submissiveness to in-group authority figures. These are the characteristics that were thought to be the hallmarks of the authoritarian personality. They exhibited ethnocentrism, meaning whatever you are is good, but you reject others that have a different background than you. This concept of the specific personality type fizzled out as time went on because a valid measure of the personality type was never developed. However, it was agreed amongst researchers that there was a strong link to prejudice in two different personality profiles. The first profile was entitled right-wing authoritarian and was made up of three specific traits. Submission to authority, aggression against those who challenge societal norms, and conventionalism or adherence to the social norms. Dr. Altemeyer, who was a professor of psychology and did extensive research, we're talking like 40 years of work on authoritarianism, to find these traits and he produced the test and skill for this profile. You can see that it's kind of similar to the F-scale characteristics, but Altemeyer's work was a lot more statistically supported with research. The second profile was entitled Social Dominance Orientation. As defined by Dr. Blaine and McClure Brenchley, it's a personality profile that places high value on hierarchy and maintenance of that hierarchy in society. These profiles are regarded as some of the most powerful predictors of prejudice. Now, because this is psychology and questions are always answered by another question, people begin to wonder if there are specific traits that put you at risk for developing right-wing authoritarianism and social dominance orientation. And it turns out there surely is. Evidence from a large study completed in 2008 by Sibley and Duckett shows that the traits of openness to new experiences and degree of agreeability were highly protected of being prejudiced against others. Dr. Blaine and McClure Brenchley explain this so purely in that your openness to trying new food, exploring new cities, talking to new people, completing something new in general requires some intellectual curiosity, appreciation for diversity, independence of judgment, and agreeableness involves compassion, cooperation, and empathy. Therefore, people intolerant of ambiguity, 
Other viewpoints are those with a high need for cognitive closure are more inclined to be prejudiced. So fun fact for you guys, it turns out that Harry Potter fans have actually been shown to be less prejudiced than the general population, and it's likely related to their openness to new experiences from the storyline. I've never actually read the books, but I've seen the movies, so shout out to J.K. Rowling for spreading some positive vibes. The last theory I'll talk about today is the evolutionary perspective theory, which is actually my favorite one, so I did save the best for last, and it's a really logical way of understanding prejudice, and it's fun to talk about the research. It explains prejudice by application of tribal behavior from over 10,000 years ago. According to lecture by Dr. Struckman Johnson, there are three processes that promote prejudice towards outgroups, aka other tribal groups. The first is inclusive fitness. We favor ourselves and our kin because we want to pass on our genes. The second is authority bearing systems. Humans are programmed to accept authority in order for knowledge to be passed on. Therefore, we will also submit to authority in order to survive. And third is intergroup hostility. Males, or the dominant members of the group, must be more prejudiced against outgroups for survival and to protect their tribe. It's very natural for us to be suspicious and unsure of people who don't look like us. There's a survival purpose in that. And it's also natural for males to carry stronger reactions to outsiders because they were primitively the protectors. So what is it in our brain that puts us on this high alert and causes prejudice to be our forefront? Dr. Robert Bender, a practicing physician in Des Moines, Iowa, explains the neuropsychology of the evolutionary perspective as the amygdala being the part of our brain that tags everything emotionally. It is the center that processes how we feel and connects several thoughts all throughout the brain. The cortex of the brain modifies how one might respond to emotional inputs by critically evaluating the rationale and true threat of the situation. The problem is, is that our emotional responses are so much faster than cortical monitoring, meaning that the amygdala sends out instructions for action before the cortex is able to modify our reaction sensibly. According to neuroscientist and professor Dr. Elizabeth Phelps, one of the amygdala's critical functions is fear conditioning. When we see a facial pattern that is not our own, it evokes a fear response. Humans operate on an awareness of past, present, and future. We seek to extinguish current and future threats, which means reacting defensively to those who are perceived as dangerous. It's a survival trait, but this can also be pathologic because essentially you're conditioning yourself to be prejudiced against others. What we know to be proven fact is that the more you learn about people and understand them as individuals separate from stereotypes and fear, the faster the cortex becomes at processing these emotional responses. And this, my friends, is why I'm discussing this topic with you today because I want all of our cortexes to be faster at processing this information. So that concludes the end of the first podcast. In next podcast, we'll dig into the major and most accepted theories of prejudice. Thanks for listening.